From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. I am Nicholas Ibarra, and I am very excited for today's episode. Based on the book by Naoki Higoshida's The Reason I Jump is an immersive film exploring the experiences of non-speaking autistic people from around the world, and we are honored to be joined today by the film's director, Jerry Rothwell. Mr. Rothwell, thank you for joining us. Hi, Nicholas. Great to be here. Congratulations on The Reason I Jump. It's really just a beautiful and enlightening film. How did you come across this project and what drew you to want to tell the story? So the idea for the film came from two of the producers, Jeremy Deere and Stevie Lee, whose son, Joss, is a non-speaking autistic teenager. And they came across Naoki Higashita's book, I think, when he when Joss was quite young and they found it kind of revelatory, uh, I think, in terms of their understanding of this. And I got involved in the project when they started working with my producer, Al Morrow, who's produced a lot of my films. It's a sort of subject matter that I've circled around in my filmmaking. You know, I kind of started out working as a community uh, video artist, working a lot with disabled people and around using video as an advocacy tool. And in 2008, I made a film called Heavy Load, which is about a punk band, some of whom were autistic. So I then sort of started reading Naki's book. I also found it kind of really insightful and interesting. And uh, I went to meet with Naki in Japan. And that's kind of where the project started, really. Naki's words are just so eye-opening and wonderful. His words do an unbelievable job of painting pictures, not just visual pictures, but sensory pictures or like sensory experiences. And one of the things that I love about your film is that you're able to add even more color to that, the way that you shoot micro inserts or the way that you you know incorporate editing in Joss's story. Each person has a very unique style. And I was just wondering how you developed each person's visual style and like general tone, because each one is different and unique to the subject. Yeah, that's interesting. You should say that. So I, I think it's true. I mean, when we when I first started talking to Naoki, he was very interested in doing the project, but not interested in being filmed, which sort of sent the film away from being a film that was kind of about you know a young boy coming finding his voice and becoming a writer, and towards like how do we use these kind of words that he wrote using a, a letterboard when he was. Uh, 12 years old to illuminate sort of the the, the lives of other non-speaking people around the world and how to do that without the characters in the film just becoming illustrations of the book that for mm-hmm. me was quite important and to to kind of acknowledge their diversity and individuality and not see them as kind of just representative of, of something because each of them as you say is really different and I think we really worked so that the style of each section of the film I mean one one early decision was that was not to intercut the the characters throughout the film. You know, one way of making this film is you kind of constantly cutting between these four different sets of characters who you visit. But instead, we decided to, you know, spend time with each of them, 10 to 15 minutes with each person, kind of immersing yourself in their world and their and the things around them and the sort of key points of their lives, using the book kind of in a fairly minimal way as a way of kind of nudging the audience to see things in a slightly different way. 
And I guess stylistically, partly we, we took off from descriptions in the book because the book ultimately is a, the book is a, a set of answers to 58 questions that Naoki <laughs> feels that people ask about autism. So not a very promising sort of starting point for an adaptation. There's no characters, <laughs> no story. It's like, it's like you know, Q, doing, doing an adaptation of a Q&A. But those descriptions are, as you say, they're very kind of sensuous and they describe a really different way of seeing. And one of the things that Naoki says, for example, you know, he says that he he sees the detail of things before he can uh, mm-hmm. see the context and the big picture. He says something like, you know, a person looking at, at a daffodil can't see the mountain far away, and a person looking at a mountain can't see the beauty of the daffodil. And this is this is so. So I think we took that approach of saying, okay, how can we take this? Uh, particularly, for example, with Amrit, who's the first person you encounter in the film. She's an artist in India, a non-speaking artistic artist who creates these incredibly detailed, beautiful paintings. And, and I felt that she was a kind of way into another way of seeing and that to shoot with her, we needed to shoot in a way that used a lot of macro lenses, found the details in her environment and perhaps immersed you in those details without, you know, before you come to see the context of them. Yeah, as you say, a sort of style emerged really for each character. For Joss, who's the second person we kind of visit in the film, memory and time becomes really important. The idea that things that may have happened when he was two or three year olds are really present for him. So, you know, luckily with Joss, because he was the producer's son, we had access to all his home movie footage and we could kind of create an intercut between the past and the present in a really fluid way. So, yeah, I think we just have evolved these styles around each person's individuality. Yeah, and and you guys really pull it off beautifully. And it helps to to get to know these people. As the film talks about, there are a lot of misconceptions about autism, you know, assumptions about, quote unquote, the autistic spectrum. Uh, you know, people say there's a mild, severe, you know, genius ends of the spectrum and the opposite. But Naoki's book kind of discounts those notions. And as the viewer, you know, as we're spending more and more time with these people, you know, those notions kind of go out the window as well. As I finished the film, I was reflecting on watching this as I was just like, they're just different people, you know, they've got different ticks, they got different kicks, things they like, things they don't like. But I mean, that's no different from anybody. (laughs) It's like, uh, I like my I like my music really loud and my lights dark. My girlfriend does uh, likes things very bright and uh, and the music not so loud. So I just I thought it was you guys paint a a beautiful picture of just individuality. and, And I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because all of them, I think, would be labelled as you know, using using that word severe, you know, severe mm-hmm. autism, which is a terrible description. And that this idea that we have of autism as this kind of line between severe and high functioning or low functioning is, is just uh, gives no account really of the of the constellations of difference that people have, you know, and the ways in which they perceive the world, the ways in which they communicate. Naoki's book, especially, you know, that that prevalent idea about theory of mind, you know, that autistic people find it difficult to understand others that the, his book completely blows that idea away yeah it's so observant of neurotypical people you know and i think that comes out of someone who's had to observe and work out you know what are these people doing what are what are neurotypical people doing and why do they consider me so different you know and it's so that even at a really young age you know he's writing this book when he's 10 11 12 years old he's very very perceptive about other minds very perceptive of other minds and just really smart. Again, something that we learn from the people that you follow, 
you know, you mentioned Amrin, who's a just an outstanding artist. <laughs> Her work is like really beautiful. And then there was one moment in particular that grabbed me with Ben when he was asked about his educational experience, what it was like before using letterboards. And he uses the letterboard to say, they've denied us our civil rights. And that was just a really powerful statement from him because Mm -hmm. he just, you really feel for the guy because it's like, he's been stuck in his mind, not being able to communicate, you know, wanting to learn, wanting to get an education and he's smart enough to get it, but he hasn't had that opportunity because of not in a mean way, but just ignorance. Yeah. I think because, because people have assumed that he's unable to learn. That scene comes in the midst of a a learning about um, Argentina, I think, aren't they? As Mm -hmm. part of some online remote course that they're doing. And I think it's Emma's mother, you know, says, you know, who, who inspired uh, Peron and she spells out Mussolini. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lovely moment in the film, you know. Right. I think that's right, you know, and if the film can, particularly with educators, help people to understand the potential that people have and to assume kind of competence rather than assume on the basis of someone's non-use of, of speech yeah. that they're incapable of understanding things, you know, that would be a great thing. Did you initially have any, were there any reservations from some of the subjects that you were following around about wanting to do the documentary? You know, it's not always easy to have a, a film crew, uh, you know, living with you for a few weeks. Were they open to it or was there some pushback? I think consent in a film like this works differently, perhaps from ordinarily. I mean, I think always consent is more than about, you know, people signing a release form. It's a process of developing a kind of relationship and an understanding of what what the film is is that you're making, what this kind of joint enterprise is that you're embarking on. And for every film, that only comes during the film, you know, not before it. People kind of, you shoot with someone for a couple of hours and then you kind of come back the next day and they go, what? We thought, I thought we'd already done it. (laughs) And then they kind of (laughs) gradually realize that you're going to become part of their lives and they're going to have, you know, kind of cables running around the house (laughs) for days. (laughs) So I think, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we worked with people who wanted to do it. You know, we were kind of very kind of attentive, I guess, to when people didn't want to be filmed, when it became too much or when we need to stop or, or back off. Those in the film, I think that that kind of moment of of kind of close attention on their lives in a kind of hopefully a sort of non judgmental way was was kind of pretty welcome. Yeah, and a sense of understanding, you know, I guess, or wanting to help the world understand their experience was probably important to them. And you got to travel to some pretty cool places, Sierra Leone. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. I mean, I'd, I'd been I'd been sort of filming in Sierra. The reason I, I kind of started looking in Sierra Leone for the artistic person's experience there was that I'd already been filming around a, a totally different subject matter, around kind of land rights and and lead access to the access to the law. Right. But during that, I kind of came across Mary Justina's mum had was doing this amazing work in the rural areas around. Uh, really kind of support for families of autistic children, particularly in kind of battling the sort of stigma around autistic children where, you know, for, for a long time sort of autistic and some other disabled children have been abandoned because they're seen as, as the children of evil spirits. And so, you know, her work was very much around kind of creating, trying to create acceptance within those communities. And Justina herself was a kind of really magnetic character on on film. The one thing I, I love about documentary filmmaking is you as the filmmaker, you kind of are going along with for the experience with the audience that you're making the movie for. So what did you take away from this experience 
both as a filmmaker and as a person. I mean, that's really true, isn't it? I think what you see on screen in a documentary, ideally, is the the journey of the of the filmmaker. That kind of filmmaking is always like an inquiry rather than something where you've kind of decided the answers to everything and now you're going to transmit them through film. So, I mean, for me, I think when you watch the film, there's this kind of cumulative effect, you know, where each person you go to tells you something new about their experience and, and shows you a different way of, of seeing things. And that cumulative effect you know, certainly, I think on all of us in the crew had a had a kind of real impact on the way we saw the world and the bits of ourselves that we maybe had closed off. You know, the enjoyment of rocking to a fan um, right. as it spins next year is a, you know something to be to be enjoyed. Or, or you know, the sound the sounds of electricity junction boxes that Joss gets into, and when you do start listening to them and the ways in which the sort of three phase electricity creates these kind of tones, you no, know, it took Joss to show us that. Yeah, I thought that was really beautiful. I was like, man, you could really appreciate that. I was like, maybe we should all take a, a, yeah. a cue from Joss and just stop and hear the junction boxes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a really just amazing film. It was a, a pleasure to watch it. The Reason I Jump, it is in select theaters now. It'll be available virtually. And for all my Los Angeles listeners, it is available at the Lemley Virtual Cinemas. So I implore you all to check it out. Not only can you see an outstanding film, but you can also support cinemas and local theater chains. Lord knows they need it right now. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return, Jerry's going to help us out with our favorite segment, Give Me Three. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. This week, I want to talk about Minari, a new film written and directed by Isaac Lee Chung based on his childhood in Arkansas. Minari is produced by A24 along with Plan B. Both of these companies have been stellar with their releases for a number of years now. I'm always really impressed with their stuff. What I found most exceptional and original about Minari is its perspective on the elusive and mythical American dream. The common immigrant narrative deals with the dichotomy of trying to make it in America versus the pain and loss of leaving your ancestral home. However, in Minari, all three adult characters want to live in America and embrace the struggle to attain the American dream. The conflict derives from the fact that they each have their own version of the dream. I also have to mention the two child actors, Noelle Kate Cho and Alan Kim. They're amazing, and especially Alan gets a lot of great lines and moments in which to shine. Check out Minari. Let us know what you think. I promise you'll love it. And that was my minute. Thanks for listening. I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. What about grandma smell?
All right, we're back here on Film Forward, and we are talking to the director of The Reason I Jump, Jerry Rothwell. He's about to give us three films that have inspired him or inspired his work. Mr. Rothwell, let's get your first one. Hi, Lucas. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do this. I mean, it was really hard to to pick three. You know, I so know, many, it's, but so I would do give me five, but that doesn't rhyme, you know. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I went for I went for things which, uh, well, at least two of them are kind of quite out of the way choices because uh, I thought that's probably a kind of good thing to do. Um, and and the, my first was is the Ark, uh, which is by a series actually for the BBC by Molly Deneen, which was uh, made in the nineties. Molly Deneen is a British filmmaker, observational documentary, really. You know, doesn't make films frequently, <laughs> maybe mm. once every five ten years. This was a series that she did in the early nineties, and I think I. I saw it just as I was beginning to get into the idea of documentary making. Yeah. What's amazing about it. So it's the story of, uh, it's a, it's a film shot in London zoo, a four part series in, in London zoo. It's about the zoo. It's the zoo at a particular time, a particular moment. And it's a moment in the kind of, when the, the sort of Thatcherism of the eighties has really taken hold in Britain and this kind of marketization of all areas of life, even areas that don't necessarily aren't, aren't geared to make a profit, the area of education or health, or in this case, the zoo, um, is starting to be kind of penetrated by, by Thatcherite, Thatcherite ideas. Um, and the series kind of takes all levels of the zoo at this particular moment when the zoo is, um, first of all, going through a kind of restructuring uh, to make it a more of a commercial entity. Mm. And part of that is it's going to get a panda from China um, who's going to be uh, exhibited in the zoo. And it covers that story, I don't know how long it's shot over, maybe even a year, at all levels, you know. So there, there are kind of these sort of class hierarchies in the film, which start at the kind of board and the director of the zoo and the, the PR team and go right down to the animals or to the person that keeps snails, you know, and snails are not very commercial. in, in Right. The <laughs> so so he, she kind of manages to create these layers of perceiving this thing, which is about people's relationship with animals, I guess, which within them, even though really, you know, she's just talking about the zoo and at this moment, and it's basically observational with her conversations. She's a brilliant conversationalist with subjects, uh, particularly men. She's kind of, she gets, the kind of, <laughs> she takes men to the kind of strangest places of their sort of their obsessions and their individuality. And she manages to convey, I think, a kind of historical moment in Britain through, through this one very focused story. And that's kind of why I like it. It sounds fascinating. I, I have not seen it, but it uh, I I must check it out because I'm a sucker for animals and and I'm a sucker for docu series and it, it sounds like it'd be right up my alley. Great, yeah. Well, it's a, I think it's a there's a DVD, it's a BFI DVD, I think. Of, okay, cool. Uh, of Molly Deline's work, so yeah, check it out. I mean, all of her films are great. I think uh, so. I will put it on the top of my list. All right, your second one, sir. Okay, my second one is Kings of Nowhere by uh, Betsabe Garcia, who's a young uh, Mexican filmmaker. I think she was maybe, I don't know, mid-early 20s even when she made this film. It's a feature documentary. It's about a town that has been, or it's about the inhabitants of a town that are left 
in the town after the town has been flooded by a dam in a, a dam that's been built in the valley and the town is now underwater. So I think there are maybe two or, even, or three families in the film still living there who won't leave, who are now making their way around what used to be kind of crowded streets and, you know, going to, ch- going to the church, which as far as I remember is kind of underwater up to its steeple by, yeah. by boat. Um, and they don't kind of get on with each other as far as I can remember. There are all these kind of little rivalries between them. But what I love about it is this sense of place that she's created and she's done it without giving us any context at all. So you really, you know, you're as a, as a viewer in the film, you're just gradually understanding this place, this nowhere in which these, these kind of kings of nowhere, the people who still live there, who now, for whom it is now their kind of domain. And you kind of gradually understand what's what's happened there. And on the fringes of this town, sometimes in the night you'll hear gunfire. Or uh, and the sound the sound design in the film is amazing. I saw it in mm-hmm. the cinema, and, and you just have this sense of this there's something going on on the edges of this world that you don't quite understand. And gradually you come to realize that the cartels are kind of circling this area, and that there are these kind of brutal bits of evidence of sort of deaths of bodies found. But it's a really extraordinary film and a really extraordinary, it's our first feature. Actually, I had the privilege of mentoring her, not on that film, but that's how I came to see that film. And she's a kind of really unique um, filmmaker with a really great kind of vision. And I think it's a, it's a good one to check out. And for me, in terms of um, the reason I jump, I think what it gave me, how it inspired me is the way you could kind of create a, a sense of place through sound with kind of minimal context. Yeah, it's 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 actually incredible to hear that the filmmaker was in her 20s and this was her first feature because it feels like we're in the hands of a master. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so it's so patient. Like I like you said it creates a sense of space. I think like the first 5 minutes the camera's just in a boat and you're like going through the water coming up on this town that's like half underwater. So you're experiencing it for the first time as if you're you're rowing up to it and it's kind of jaw dropping. Mm-hmm. When I started watching it, I was like, oh my God, these people are crazy. They need to get out of there. But the, the more the film goes on, you're hearing them talk about this place, memories, marriage, laughter, all the things that happened here. You get an understanding of why they've stuck around and it's just, it's, it's hard for them to leave. Mm-hmm. And then, as you mentioned, you hear gunshots, <laughs> you know, on the outskirts of town. You're like, well, is it, is it that much better out, uh, you know, out yeah. in the quote unquote yeah. real world? It made me think because it's also... A sad but sobering truth that climate refugees are going to be starting to come more and more a thing, and it was it was just interesting to think how how we would handle that or how I would handle that individually. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. Every year, my city's on fire, and the thought just crossed my mind: like, what am I doing here? This fire outside of my door. But it was a, it was a really great watch. I think there's something, I mean, I'm glad you, you saw it and enjoyed it. I mean, I, I saw it a few couple of years ago and I just have such strong memories of it. And it felt to me, I remember at the time, it felt like also like a kind of um, play by Samuel Beckett or uh, mm-hmm. you know, like something kind of like this very strange kind of, you know, it's utterly realistic, but it's got this amazing sort of vibe to it. That's- yeah. Kings of Nowhere. It's it's a really incredible watch. Everybody check it out. It's available to rent on uh, on Amazon Prime for like two bucks. And it's well worth the price. All right. The third and final one, sir. 
Okay, the third one is is maybe a more kind of populist choice, Koyan Iskatsi by um, is it Godfrey or Jeffrey Reggio. For those that don't know the film, it's uh, non-verbal in the sense that it's entirely uh, done to a Philip Glass score. And it's, I guess, about human relationship to the environment and to, it's sort of about late capitalism, isn't it? It's about mm-hmm. um, the kind of the, the world we've created and how distant that is from, from the natural world. As part of watching, as part of the getting together, the reason I jump, I did kind of watch a bunch of films, deliberately kind of sort out films that were largely nonverbal. You know, how does cinema kind of work? How does especially kind of documentary cinema without people telling you stuff and giving mm-hmm. you a lot of context? I mean, I don't think the reason I jump does have quite a lot of words in it, but but I wanted to sort of understand how those films worked. And so I kind of went back to Keanu Scarti, which I remember first seeing as a teenager in the cinema and kind of going to repeatedly, actually. It's just a really remarkable, it's got this remarkable shape to it, I think, where it's got this kind of forward motion to it, even though there's no plot. These images kind of accumulate one after the other to give what is in the end quite a kind of devastating view of modern life. I remember particularly the sort of sped up sequences which cross oh, yeah. sausage factory <laughs> with people going through Grand Central Station or yeah. and you know it starts very slowly in these these caves of the first kind of human etchings on on the cave walls, I think, and then and then kind of takes us gradually into a more and more kind of techno dystopian world. Um, so yeah, and it's it's got superb soundtrack, obviously much kind of imitated, much used since. Kind of, I think at that point, Philip Glass became the kind of bedrock of all documentary soundtracks, which is <laughs> not not great. But, uh, but this is the original. Yeah, like you, that I saw this film for the first time when I was a teenager in a high school film class and it blew my hair back. And I remember being in high school trying to show this film to other of my high school friends and they were like, what the hell are you showing up here? <laughs> it had been probably about 14 years since I had seen this and I just rewatched yeah. it this week for the first time since then. And it, right. it was just a breathtaking experience. It still, it yeah, definitely still holds up. But it's, it definitely it, holds up, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just remarkable how a film with no plot and no characters can be so profound, say so much, not only profound and say so much, but there are, there are moments of this that are just like exhilarating and you're like, mm-hmm. you know, your heart's beating. And then, like you said, the end is just a wallop and mm-hmm. you're left like devastated. And it's mm-hmm. like, my God, it is, I've, I've never seen anything like it and haven't seen anything like it since. I know there's a couple of sequels also. Mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't seen those, but my film teacher from high school said, that I should check them out because I texted mm-hmm. him the other day and I was like, hey, I'm watching Koyana Scotsi. I'm thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sequels, the, the sequels sort of, maybe that, maybe it's when you, when you see it as a film as a teenager, it kind of, it, it lives with you forever. But yeah. um, for me, yeah, the sequels, are, they're also great. Um, they're not quite as great, but they're, yeah. they're really, they're something else. Yeah. Thank you for bringing Koyana Scotsi back to me because it was a great rewatch. And like, as soon as it finished, I was like, I kind of just want to hit play again. <laughs> I want to watch it immediately again. For those who haven't seen it, check it out. It's, uh, it is available on Amazon Prime now for, for subscribers. It is worth a watch. Jerry, it was a real honor to speak to you. And uh, your, your film really moved me. And I want to thank you for, for doing this. Thanks, Nicholas. It's been a, been a pleasure. Once again, the reason I jumped, it is in select theaters now. 
and it's available virtually. For all my Los Angeles listeners, it is available at Lemley Virtual Cinemas. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.